Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. For over 22 years, Leslie Joan Lupo has helped people heal and transform their lives using her gift as an intuitive therapist at the famed Canyon Ranch Resort in Tucson, Arizona. She's the founder of Light Your Path, Cultivate a Life of Self-Worth, where she provides personal and group intuitive readings and workshops. She's an NLP specialist, a spiritual teacher, and workshop leader. Known as the science-minded mystic, she authored the book, Remember Every Breath is Precious, Dying Taught Me How to Live, which reveals her profound near-death experience after being killed by a stampede of horses. Here's my conversation with Leslie about her NDE and the insights that she incorporates into her life, as well as her lectures and workshops. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So you had a very detailed and uh, extraordinary NDE that you wrote about in your book called Remember Every Breath is Precious, Dying Taught Me How to Live. Now, I had, uh, read it, had to read it in part because there was so much information and detail and even concepts that I had to kind of sit back and process a little bit longer, right? It's just not, you know, a straight read. I really had to visualize everything in my mind and kind of really get my head around your descriptions. And um, you also add some science to the spiritual aspect of the book, which I really enjoy. And um, I'd love to talk about that a little later. So, but let's right now, let's just get right into it and have you tell us about this incredible numinous experience. It was a time in my life was when I did not have a spiritual path. I would say I was borderline atheist and I was not on a spiritual path at all. So, um... I was working at a dude ranch, which had a hundred and some horses, like 120 or 30 horses. And I was able to work there because my husband owned it and I was a horsewoman. So I had gone down to help the cowboys and the I went down because two of the horses had run down to the hay barn without their saddle. I walked down, and I felt that I was really lucky because they were standing right next to each other, and I thought it would be easy to catch them. And it was at the end of the day, so the horses were all crammed in tight trying to eat, and you couldn't put, you know, your hand between them. And I was trying to wiggle in between them when all of a sudden I, my soul, as it turns out, popped out of my body and watched what happened next. Um, One of the horses screamed, and they bolted. And I watched myself get bounced around, trampled on, and finally slammed into the hay barn because I was trying to wiggle between the horses, and when they started to bolt, my arm went into the stirrup all the way up to my shoulder, and I was kind of struggling to stay on my feet. But I didn't feel anything. I mean, Mm. if someone watched me, there was nobody there. If someone had seen that, they would have said, yes, she suffered horribly. But I didn't because I didn't feel it. I was standing like 15 feet away in such a place of peace. 
and this complete awareness that it's like it's like taking off a, a jacket that's a little tight when you get home and throwing it on the bed, you know, and it was amazing. Um, and I felt so serene. I didn't feel any of the negativity that she, I always say she, because it wasn't me anymore, was going through. And then I saw my body get flipped to the side, and I knew I was dead. There was never a doubt. There was never a part of me that said, oh, I'm dreaming or I'm unconscious. And all my senses were heightened. And I felt like I had expanded and, and I was light and it was refreshing. Um, and I looked to see, am I a ghost? And I wasn't a ghost. I was wearing the same clothes I was wearing on the ground. But I had this little um, kind of blue kind of a cobalt blue light around me, just to like a quarter of an inch. And suddenly, everything started shifting around me eventually. Um, and Tucson started fading away, and I, and I kind of traveled somehow to a forest. I didn't have that where people say they're going through a tunnel or they feel themselves flying. It was almost as if Tucson faded and another realm came into view. And I felt very protected while all this, it was kind of a feeling of whirling around me, but I had these white beings standing around me, and I felt like very protected from whatever was going on. And then I was what I came to call upstairs, because... Like I said, at the time it happened, I was like borderline atheist. So when I came back, I couldn't say heaven still yet. I, I so I called it upstairs because I, I love that. I, I don't <laughs> know what just happened, but I know it was not a dream or a hallucination, and I had to figure this out because, like I said, at that point, I had zero spiritual interest. I was much, very much a scientific mind, and I had no interest in. Anything having to do with, I thought you died, that's it. Well, I'm in this incredibly beautiful forest, and everything is vaguely, you know, familiar. And I look at my hands, and I look like my skin looks like it's, I'm in college again, like 20 years old. You know, no wrinkles, no anything like that. And I have these big freckles on it. And I'm touching my hair, and it's short to my jaw. And I, I've got really long hair. I'm like, wait, I like long hair. And it's, you know, and I'm a lady, and I'm wearing this dress. It's kind of a flowy type of a deep uh, blue. And I'm looking around at everything. And the first thing that knocked me for a loop, which is so difficult to explain, and I tried so hard to to put this in the book is the amount of love you feel and how everything is translucent, the plants, the, the ferns, and it's like I, it, the selfless love coming from every thing that was present was almost overwhelming me. But then I felt the same level of love coming from me towards these trees and these, it was kind of a oak forest with some um, moss on it and uh, not Spanish moss, but just, and then ferns and flowers and 
butterflies and I could hear birds twittering. And it was just overwhelming. And then the second thing I realized was uh, I had no fear in me. And my background is I have a degree in developmental psychology. And I'm, you know, we have that, what they call the animal brain, that fight, flight, or freeze reflex that we have. That's in our, you know, and I'm up there devoid of it. It was like it was completely taken out of me because I have no idea where I am. As alert and vibrant as I felt on earth, out of my body, I felt like I was groggy upstairs. And I was trying to process everything. So I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. And yet I felt perfectly at peace with it. Like there was no nervousness. And and I was just so aware. It was like someone just pulls a part of you out and you fill in with all this love. It was like pure love head to toe. And then I noticed um, as I'm looking around a table and there were some people there. Now, I'm going to say walked over, but there's no walking. It was almost like a, I don't know how to describe this, like a slideshow. I'm here. And it's like if you look at the door right now and you think, oh, I want to go out, you're there at the door. So when I'm looking at this table, it it was like two steps. And it might have been 40 yards away, but it was like two steps. I'm, I'm there at the table. And everyone's cheering me and saying, welcome back. And, and again, I've got this familiarity feeling, but I can't quite access it. And um, there was a seat that I'd gone to. They were mostly standing, and I went to a particular seat. They all kind of had a, each one had a different symbol on the back. And um, when I, I went to one, and everyone sat, so that must be my chair. And there was 11 people we sat. It was an oval table. It was a beautiful, like, lapis lazuli table. Um, and they had the little flecks of gold. And there was a man sitting on my right, and he had this short beard, and his hair was in a ponytail. And again, it, everything is mostly telepathic. And I couldn't tell if I was remembering his name or I knew his name. Like I said, my memory was not completely um, back yet from upstairs. And uh, I knew his name was Raul. And then on my left, there was a woman that I had seen often as a child. And I used to call her the blue lady because she had a really pretty blue dress on. And she looked like she's from India. She had one big, huge, bright, beautiful bronze skin and eyes. And she had this one long braid over her left shoulder. And I got the name Nina. And so I sat down, and we they started trying to help me get reconciled to where I was and what happened. They showed me pictures of my childhood. But, you know, and when they would show me pictures, there were some wavy lines. Like you see when you're driving in the day, and it's, you know, it's really hot, and you see those heat waves on the road. It was mm-hmm. kind of like that. It was bending the pictures of everyone behind the on the other side of the oval. And she would show me pictures, and it was like watching a three-dimensional movie. 
For example, they showed me how the accident occurred. The cowboys had let out the herd boss, and he walked down to get fed, and the herd boss is the head horse of the entire herd, and they're the crankiest, meanest ones because the horse horse herds have a pecking order. And so he had fought his way to the top, which means when he puts his ears back, all the horses run. And so he had just been on saddle. His name was Montana, and he went thumping down there and put his ears back and nipped one of the horses to make sure everyone got out of his way so he could eat. And I just happened to be caught up in that stampede that was uh, caused by six or seven horses bolting away from him. And then they, we talked about um, the fact that I wasn't completely there, that I was processing because I felt so groggy. And then they said I had to make a decision because I could stay up there if I wanted or and go back to my soul group, or I could go back to Earth. And they wanted me to be a little acclimated before I started to um, make that choice. And the interesting thing is, everybody around the table looked like college kids, except their eyes. Now, I've done this lecture of mine at the university and the Spiritual Psychology PhD program, and I'm generally talking to kids that are 22 to 24. And a lot of them will come up afterwards. And they all look like the same age, except for they have those baby eyes. You know, they just don't have the wisdom of life yet. And looking in everyone's eyes, it was almost like a million years of wisdom. And I'm sure, I mean, I couldn't see myself, but I'm sure I would have had that same level because this was my soul group. And um, so they said, why don't you kind of walk around and be a little used to get acclimated here, then we'll discuss. Because if I had discussed it right then, I would have said, I'm staying. You know, um, this is like, you know, this is like heaven. So I'm not going back under any circumstances. You had a choice, right? They gave you a choice, choice. which is very unusual. Yeah, you know, Anita Marjani wrote a book called Dying to Be Me, brilliant book, and she also mm-hmm. had a choice, but you're right. I think of all the people that have near-death experiences, there's only about 25% that go fully on another side, you know, that most of them have it within the operating room or within the hospital, um, and of that 25% that does cross over into the other realm or another realm. There's, I think about 10% of us are being given the choice. Most people are just either sent back without being talked to about it, or they're told, I'm sorry, you have to go back. Yeah, it was unusual. And, you know, I didn't know that at the time because, again, I'm coming out of a lifetime of having zero interest in religion and having no spiritual studies or knowing anything about you know, anything that I experienced upstairs. It was more the aftershock when I came back of having to try to work it out and what the heck just happened because my social group was agnostic or atheist. You know, the whole social group I was in in Tucson, it was like no one had any time for faith or spirit or religion. 
So yeah, that was like sorting things out. So integrating uh, the experience is always a challenge from my understanding of people who have NDEs. Um, and it can take even many, many years. Oh, yes. And, you know, one thing that's interesting is they asked me if I wanted to remember it or not. And the, the thing is this, because there's no fear upstairs, when someone makes a suggestion, it's not in any way trying to, um, there's no arm twisting or aura twisting. It's just, it, they they said to me, you can remember this or not. Again, I'm not sure if everyone has that choice too. And I wonder how many people say, I don't want to remember it. Because what they told me was it would be very isolating. And it is very isolating. Um, much the same way that someone who has a very deep personal tragedy like loss of a child always has that sense of isolation unless they meet another person who's lost a child. Because that's something none of us can fathom. You know, we can be empathetic, we can give them hugs, but we have no idea what that feels like. And it's the same thing with this. And there seems to be, um, from the near-death experiencers I've met and chatted with, that sense of fragility, too. I always tell people it's like being a house of cards because certain things will cause us to be very sad or sorrowful. You know, we're much more sensitive to suffering or we're much more sensitive to cruelty if we see it in the news or we watch movies. I know that it definitely changed my um, ability to be watching certain TV shows or documentaries, and and I don't worry about that. At first, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm just never going to fit in again. And I thought, no, I fit in. It's just there's certain things I don't do. And um, it's like someone who quit smoking. They move on with their life and they fit in, they just don't smoke anymore, you know, so they won't go in a crowded room where a lot of people are smoking. It's that kind of thing. You know what to avoid. So I don't go see violent movies or not that I saw a lot before, but I'm not missing a lot. Right. So how did you integrate your experience? I know you met a lot of um, people along the way who are a little bit more um, in tune with that level, that vibration, if you will almost uh, synchronistically, you seem to meet the right people at the right time. Well, it was, that's another thing. If Thursday told me if I remembered, it would take me a few years to integrate everything if I went back because I'd had a massive head injury and took me over a year and a half to get most of my memory back. But when you're upstairs, it's like they tell you a few years, it feels like that's a long as your fingernail, you know, on your little finger after a manicure, you know. So you're like, oh, what's a couple of years? You know, it's a few years. Well, then I'm laying in my bed crying and sobbing, saying to them, oh, my gosh, you guys, you wait till you're down here and I'm up there because I'm going to make you remember this day, you know. And it's just, um, it was very difficult. And in actuality, I had the accident in 1988. And I didn't find the group I am until 2009. I mean, that's how long it took me. And for the first few years, I would have some extraordinary people crossing my path 
where our veterinarian retired that summer, uh, June, July of 88, hired a new vet, and she's Mystic Meg. And she's very tied to spirituality and intuitive people like I had been way back in college. And then another lady, a medicine woman, comes to deliver something to an employee that, who no longer worked there. So I was going to get the address to give her. And then all of a sudden, I just blurted out, do you know how to ride? Because they wouldn't let me ride by myself anymore, which I don't mind. Uh, that was wise. And so she and I started a friendship. And she's um, a medicine woman, you know, who does tarot reading. She's very intuitive. And it in that way, but at the same time, I'm being thrown out of spiritual group with anyone that I wanted to talk about the near-death experience. And the doctor had threatened me with the psychiatric hospital uh, when I tried to talk about it in the hospital afterwards, to the point he said he'd throw me in and I'd be drugged up. I wouldn't know if it was day or night. And I have to say, of all the times in my life, I've never felt so 100% helpless because he could have done that. My family all believed him that I was having a psychotic break and they did not believe me that I was not psychotic, that this actually happened. So this was your attending physician? This was your, the doctor who treated you? Yes. He told me that um, because I came back with these memories of heaven and the love and the, um, uh, you know, miraculous uh, things that were upstairs. And I couldn't share it with anybody. And the day that the doctor had finally sat down in my room and he's poking me in the shoulder while he's telling me he's going to put me in a psych unit and drug me, there was a nurse in the room and she just, was actually leaving when he kind of barged in and then she stuck around and he left and she came over. And by that time I'd rolled over on my stomach and I was just sobbing. I, I was terrified. And she started rubbing my back and she's an ER doctor. Cause I was in the ICU for a while and she's a ER ICU, you know, and I wasn't um, into the main hospital yet. And so um, the, um, she started rubbing my back, and she told me that she had heard that before. And I just stopped, and I looked at her, and she said um, that she had heard other people tell her that they'd had visions, or they'd seen their uncle who had died, you know, and they'd had these visions when they had this, uh, surgery and had been declared dead or had been resuscitated. And the next night, she and another nurse came in um, at the end of the day and um, they sat down and I got like 10 or 15 minutes to chat with them about it. And that was it, you know. It was kind of at the end of my stay and I might have seen the, the lady once or twice, but we never talked again. But that memory was what kind of kept me sane because when everyone's telling you you're crazy, you do begin to say, am I having a psychotic break? You know, is sure. there something wrong with me? If you're not asking yourself, then I don't know that you can look at it objectively. You have to be 
in my opinion, objective. But Absolutely. every time I'd close my eyes and I would get this, the, the memories, vivid memories flooding back, I'd say, no, I know it was real. It was not a hallucination. And so you, you, um, sorry, you got some support from, you mentioned IANS, which is the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. In 2009, they opened a chapter here, and Dana, my friend, the medicine woman, wrote me and said, hey, um, I've just joined IANS. Um, you should join it. And I went, and it still took me about 10 months of going every month before I mentioned I had a near-death experience. I had had so much trouble with people treating me like a freak after they heard that, that I just shut up about it. And even in IAM, there was nobody in the group. They were people that were interested, the local people. There was no one in the group, including the um, people who had started the chapter, that had a near-death experience. There was one woman that would come from time to time, but everyone else was just interested in it. And what I had found out was I either had people like throwing eggs at me or people clinging to you thinking, oh, you're holy, you know, I can follow you, and you're not holy. It doesn't make you, I mean, it definitely alters your perspective. But it's not like you come back a saint. I mean, you watch me watch my quarterback throw an interception and get purple in the face. Uh, I mean, I don't scream and swear or anything like that. But, I mean, I was the same person afterwards. It's just I developed a very deep spiritual path because I had to. And that's kind of like what a lot of people are doing. They're taking their core faith and they're saying, I can't walk that faith. But I do believe in a bigger picture or divinity, and I'm going to take, make my own recipe for it. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yep. And that's kind of what I went on doing. It took me like a year and a half before um, I had so much flack over it that when I first got back, my son was, you know, 15 months old. My daughter was three. I thought, you know what, it's best if I just get grounded. I had to get used to go working again. I had to get used to memories coming back, and that took like a year and a half. And then my marriage, we had had a lot of problems before the injury, and after a couple, three years, about three years, we finally got divorced in 92. So um, we couldn't make it work, and then I had to really reinvent myself. Because I had moved to Tucson from Morocco and didn't know anybody and then moved out to Tangaverde Ranch when I got married. So I didn't know anyone in Tucson. It was like coming into a new city. I had no friends. I had nothing. So I really had to, you know, come to terms with what am I going to do the rest of my life? Who am I? And what is going on? You know, it was truly a rebirth, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, that's why I did the astrology. You know, it's like it is a rebirth. And I I would say to anyone who's had a near-death experience that you should do an astrology chart for that day because that's a phenomenal rebirth. It really is. 
Yes, I remember. I really was really impressed with the astrology reading you had. That's uh, in the later part of your book. And your account, even the names of your soul group, Mina and Raul, actually coincide with Vedic astrology, which is just extraordinary because it essentially validated your NDE because the astrologer didn't even know your story at all. No. Well, he did this thing where he said, you should be dead twice to me. Well, yes, I was supposed to die in my early 20s. That was what I'd signed up for. But they said, you love the earth so much, you jumped over that and you stayed. So your contract, so to speak, is over so you can stay here now. Or if you choose, you can go back. And he, when he was doing without knowing anything about my near death, he told me twice I was supposed to have died and couldn't figure it out. And I'm giggling. And when I told him the name and started telling him about it, and I mentioned Rao and Nina, he said, do you know these names? And I said, no, I'm just repeating what I know. And this was maybe 20 years after I'd had the experience. And he's a Vedic astrologer. Well, he does every astrology. And he came back the next day, and I thought he was going to go. He was so excited. Because Rao is the north node of the moon, which goes through Mina every 20 years and for 18 minutes or 26 minutes. And during that 26 minutes is when I had the accident. So Rao was going through Mina, you know, just for 26 minutes every 20 years, happened to be coincidentally in air quotes, the exact same moment I had the um, accident. So that's. That was freaky to me, especially like Rao, because when I'm walking up to the table and I'm looking at Rao, he's got this beautiful ultraviolet purple shirt on with this embroidery in the same color thread, and he's got these orange, orangey pants on, and I'm looking at him thinking, kind of like a burnt orange, I'm thinking, who dressed you, you know? I mean, all the colors of the universe and everything else else was so beautifully in balance and here's these clashing colors but then as without even asking John Dennis goes oh and you know his color is in Vedic they have a color is ultraviolet and the stone is Hessenite garnet which is burnt orange looking so that also surprised me I was like oh my goodness one of the lessons I came back with which was really pivotal for me was the understanding how the world is a one-room schoolroom. And the example I always use is like, in the theory of reincarnation, the soul evolves. And the first-timers would be like in a baby playgroup, and the masters, you know, senior college masters and PhD are the older, older souls that are really in sync with what the real bigger picture is. And we just kind of go through these stages. And so um, I'm working on a workshop right now that's going to be called Map Your World. And it has to do with, uh, based on developmental psychology, Erickson and Piaget's format for how we develop as humans. And it's an analogy for how we also look at spiritual evolution. Like you could sit down, Tanya, at a, a big dinner and to be sitting next to a Fortune 500 CEO that's emotionally and spiritually in first grade, and the PhD is bringing you your water, you know, the busboy. And it has to do with how we balance ourselves 
and how much our ego controls us. And as we age, we let go of that control. And as we grow in wisdom. What else did you learn by being upstairs that really has impacted you? Um, good question. I came back and had to find my own light within myself. And one of the things that um, impacted me was when I had asked, when I'd finally walked around and I'd met up with Nina again, and we sat down, we talked a lot about the process of living and, and choices and karma and, and punishment and all that. The thing that I said then was, okay, if I stay, what will I be doing? And my soul group was placing a very high level of bodhisattva. And if someone doesn't know what that means, it's an enlightened person who, instead of going into nirvana, which is the Buddhist word for heaven, they turn around and come back to help elevate and be spiritual teachers. And you'll see them in every religion. When you meet someone who may be a priest or a rabbi or a Brahmin or a cleric, they're egoless. They love God. The, the Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva, and they're all about raise, you know, being the leaders um, or teaching. I shouldn't say being the leaders because they're rarely the leaders. Most bodhisattvas, we don't even know who they are. They're just whatever religion they're drawn, born into, they tend to be the people that go and serve God in a very egoless way, but they also elevate consciousness. So a lot of the people that will be the writers or the people that are sainted or held holy because they bring love and they bring sharing. You know, they're not excluding others, they're including. So bodhisattvas, were coming down that were a new kind of group that were blindfolded to who they were. And they were put into younger families for a specific thing. It was to break the prejudices that are taught in a generational way. Because when a bodhisattva is born, he's born into a family that's an older soul, and they notice the child's spiritual leanings, and they get them the appropriate teachers. The blindfolded bodhisattvas come in, and they are born into very young families, and they are there to elevate consciousness by, number one, breaking generational prejudices. And it could be in the family, it could be in the culture, it could be in the community, that they just can't be downloaded with them. And they're also elevating forgiveness to a really high level because for many years I did marriage and family counseling and in spite of the fact people would say, I forgive you, they didn't. And they kept that chip on their shoulder, whereas these blindfolded bodhisattvas who I've nicknamed Udini kids are people that truly forgive. And part of their lesson is to learn that unconditional love does not include the word vulnerability. So one of the things that I had to learn by finding my light within, which is what Houdini kids do, they find their light within, and they turn around and 
they're a light on the path for others. And that's one of the biggest things I learned was how important it was because one of the best things I get from people that read the book are people that are older souls. They've heard about reincarnation, but they had very difficult childhood and they cannot figure out what they did. A lot of people misunderstand reincarnation. They think if someone punches you in the face and steals your purse, that's because you did it to someone else and you have to experience it. And that's not, that's too simplistic. And so a lot of these blindfolded bodhisattvas that are hearing this and reading this, realizing, oh my goodness, I volunteered to come down and experience it so that I could elevate forgiveness and I could not be prejudiced. Wow, now I understand my rough childhood. And there, there's a relief in there that it's not a punishment for a very bad past life. Wow, what a perspective. You know, I had to read that a few times to really kind of understand how you've broken down the what you call the Houdini kids. That's incredible. And I think a lot of people can relate because I think, you know, there's a lot of people who suffer a lot of trauma growing up and difficult lives. And this actually gives some insight into, on a spiritual level, why this is or why this could be. Right. A lot of people, um, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people understand now what an empath is. You know, people that are empathetic, they don't have boundaries. So I would say that all Houdini kids fit into the empath description, but not all empaths or Houdini kids. Houdini kids came down specifically for a a very specific mission, and they were blindfolded to who they were. They have no inkling that they are as an older soul as they are, which means they have riddled with self-doubt because they know something's wrong. They, They don't like picking on this other kid in junior high like all the kids are doing, but they feel bad, but they don't know why they feel bad. And they have to um, begin to say, what do I want to do? What does my heart tell me to do? And so Houdini kids have no clue. And it's usually around their mid to late 20s that they begin to be a little more um, objective about themselves. Because a lot of Houdini kids really had a lot of uh, problems growing up. They were the awkward ones, the geeky ones. They didn't fit in. And they just didn't quite understand. They couldn't fit in some of them, their families, some of them, their religion, some of them, their communities. They just can't be in a mindset that's fundamentalist. Everyone is wrong but me. They're like, no, we're all okay. You know, just because they're different doesn't mean they're wrong. And so that's kind of how they evolve. But it is probably the number one thing I get letters on and um, emails is that very thing of feeling like I've had people tell me such stories like they felt like they were changeling. You know, they felt like this one young man told me that he had waited for his parents to come because this was a mix-up at the... He had read a story in the newspaper about a mix-up at the 
hospital and it was like six years later and these people were going through all this stuff like how do we switch babies now and we have to and it was difficult and it was a big deal in all the news and he thought oh my god that must have been why I'm here because someone switched the babies when I was you know when I was born because he just did not fit in with his family on any level he even looked different than all of them you know and he had red hair and they were all brown hair hair and he just he just was but just knowing that you're down here for a specific mission and that you volunteered for this level of inner journey work, which again goes into the collective unconscious and why we have such grassroots collaboration now. Like I said, with smart money saying cooperative businesses with the millennials, you know, and the Generation Z, they're very global conscious. And those are those indigo kids that are coming down. And the Houdini kids come down, land in a swamp, and through their inner journey work, they solidify the ground to where the indigo kids can just come down and hit the ground running. I put an excerpt about Houdini kids on my webpage. So if people want to go look at that, they can read, because I put a lot about Houdini kids up on my website now. Yes, well, a lot of people uh, definitely want to hear about it. And I know you integrate that philosophy, let's say, into your workshops, correct? Yes. Yes, the first, I have a two-day workshop that I'm going to be working with a person and probably six months from now will be online. But right now, I'm just doing a few of the exercises. The first thing that all empaths have to do, whether they're Houdini kids or not, is they have to have boundaries. And the problem is the unconditional love that we feel does not include the word vulnerability in the definition. So I can unconditionally be loving to someone like Charlie Manson and say, you are God's son. And... 2,000 years ago, you would have been thrown into the Colosseum, but today we put you in prison. But if someone called me and said, Lucy, it's his 75th birthday, do you want to take him home for the weekend, give him a break? I would be like, no, thank you. Because I don't want to be vulnerable. So unconditional love, which is for everyone on the planet, is not including vulnerability. So we have to have these gentle boundaries by including ourselves in our decision. Is this in my best interest too? It's like empaths are like a magnet for narcissists because they're selfless to a fault. And we can be selfless, but not to a fault. And that's the way to live life is be selfless, but including yourself in your decisions helps you to have some very gentle boundaries and half your decisions are going to be snapped now. If someone's asking you something that makes you feel uncomfortable, is this a selfless to a fault? I have to help everybody. You know how you hear that saying, I can't sit down to eat until everyone is fed? And empath says, I can't sit down to eat until everyone is fed in the world. Like Houdini kids need to learn how to play a little because they have that in the world added on to I can't sit down to eat and they are selfless to a fault and they will never be selfish but selfless to a fault doesn't help anybody 
including the Houdini kids. Yeah, that's a lot of people can relate to that. So this is what you offer in your programming and part of your services and your workshops and lectures. Did you ever think that you would be presenting this kind of material to people and, and providing this as a service? Um, no, actually when I, well, first I was, my degree in college was, I had a double major developmental psych and art, studio art. And I wound up going more in the psychology because I had worked in geriatrics and my first job out of college was in a nursing home. After six months or eight months of struggling as a starving artist, I I just died. I didn't want to starve anymore. And I went and got a job in a nursing home as the director of the therapy, the physical and art and music. And so I was doing that. But after the head injury, uh, and that's when I was like, borderline atheist, after the head injury, I never realized I would be talking. In fact, when I first went to IAMS, it took like almost a year before I mentioned I had a near-death experience. And even then, they asked if I would talk about it, and I said, no, and that was 2009. And the first time I talked and gave a lecture there was 2011. 12, I think, maybe 11 or 12, when they first got up in front of 150 people and talked about it. Because up till then, I was just too shy. I'm kind of a shy person. We're talking on the phone, and it's okay, but getting in front of a whole bunch of live people, you know, kind of always makes me nervous. And so I was real shy about it, but finally I felt comfortable enough to where I got up, and it was wonderful. And then I started doing lectures at Canyon Ranch where I work, on the near-death experience, and it was really, really nice. So what would you say, then, given that you've had a lot of flack and criticism over the years from the beginning of your NDE and onward, and then have come into your own and found your own light, what would you say to other people who've had near-death experiences, given what you know now? I think that it's important to know that it, you're, it was real, and there's so much more support groups out there now. Evan Alexander, um, who was a neurosurgeon and poo-pooed everything about near-death experiences, had one himself and wound up kicking the... I mean, he's Harvard-trained, brilliant neurosurgeon. He kind of kicked the door down for all of us because he went on, he's, his book has sold over a million copies. So there's all these people that are beginning to listen. And the scientific evidence, there's two scientists who have really heavily researched this. Bruce Grayson and Tim Von Lummel um, have really done decade-long. One was 40 years, one was uh, 14 years in 20 hospitals. And they've got the data now that they do happen, and they're beginning to take the stigma off. So if someone has one and they're not getting immediate support, I would say that there's IANS is online. There's another group called Eternia that um, Evan Alexander helped found with another man. And there are groups, and D E R F is another one, Enderf. 
that are people that have all these stories by all these people, and they're posted online, and they're free, so you don't have to worry about it. You just can go there and research it yourself to make up your own mind, and there are people there that are very supportive. So when people, if you're not getting support from your medical, in fact, I did a lecture at the University of Arizona has the integrative medicine program with Dr. Weil, and I did a rotation. I was the keynote speaker on a rotation, and there were two doctors, a psychiatrist, and then I finished it by giving them the story and telling them a lot more about the medical that I had endured having gone through what I went, so that if they have someone, they at least don't automatically fill them with drugs. You know, just listen. It's the most magical thing that I've ever encountered and the most blissfully happy thing I've ever encountered. And it's not supposed to be scaring people. It's supposed to be letting you know, yes, heaven is real. It's there. And um, here's, here's a way to make sure you're definitely on the path to feeling that today you can have those feelings of being connected to the to God or source or the divine, whatever name we want to use, we can have those connections now. You don't have to wait until you die, you can have it now. So Leslie, it's been so lovely speaking with you. Time has flown by. I can't even believe it. Um oh, I know. always oh, a pleasure. I, the clock. I would have thought <laughs> we were talking for twenty minutes. I know, I know. Just like last time when we first spoke, it's it's the same energy. It's terrific. Wonderful to speak with you. Uh, the book's amazing. I recommend everyone uh, go pick it up and read it. Remember, Every Breath is Precious by Leslie Lupo. Uh, lovely speaking with you, Leslie, and please come back soon and we'll talk about Houdini Kids. Okay, I'd love to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Leslie Lupo. For more about Leslie and where to find her book, please visit lesliejoanlupo.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. For comments and questions, please visit lifecontinuing.com. And make sure to join me next time to continue this conversation about life continuing.